Welcome to Your Brand Amplified, the podcast where we interview marketers, publicists, and brands to learn their stories, what makes them tick, and tips and tricks that make a difference. I'm so excited to welcome you back again to Your Brand Amplified. I'm Annika Jackson, and I'm here today with Michael Harris, best-selling author, multiplepreneur, and um, all-around badass, if I may say that, based on just reading about you. So I'm really excited to talk to you today and find out more about your story. So Michael, welcome. Thank you, Annika. It's really great to be here. As I I mentioned before, I'm really excited to be on your show. Oh, I love it. So please dive in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you've had a very up and down journey. You've done a lot of different things, starting out as an entrepreneur when you were a kid, you know, (laughs) yoga, many, many verticals. Well, I'm, I'm going to throw something out right now. <laughs> then I'll talk a little bit okay. about entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, there's this concept in, in the world about ADHD, right? Yeah. That, you know, we, we can't get focused on one thing and, and all of that. So a long time ago, I was able to rephrase that to mm-hmm. passionately diverse. Mm-hmm. And then that gave me an opportunity to really focus on what I ever, what I wanted to at one time, but to celebrate that I had all these different interests, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wanted to throw that out because I, I like the term multipreneur because I do, even today, I have three different businesses that, that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And so I stay really busy. I, I love that. And I'm going to say, I did interview Peter Shankman. Uh-huh. Um, a few, well, many episodes ago. And it, that interview is one of the most odd and interesting ones I've done because his ADHD is so present. He's, uh-huh. you know, all over the place, but yep. it really weaves together in a really beautiful narrative. And I myself um, was diagnosed as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my whole life makes so much more sense because I always did like, <laughs> I was always involved in a whole bunch of different activities, <laughs> you know, and always interested in doing so many different things. And so I love that you opened with that because I think we need to acknowledge that people, you know, have different abilities or different ways that our brains think and in, you know, the neurodiversity should be celebrated and um, utilized, right? Instead of just looked at as a negative. Well, Yeah. Yeah, I was never diagnosed with it. I suspect that I probably could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was fighting it for so long. I was fighting all these different interests that I have rather than the celebration of those different interests. Yeah. 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 Nice. So one of the things that, that you asked me what was about starting my entrepreneurship early. Yes. My dad, growing up, he was an entrepreneur. He always had his own businesses. Um, probably some of the people out there would recognize some, some of them because they've made some pretty big impacts out there um, mm-hmm. within the United States and Canada. And I won't get too much in, into that, but I always learned and something dad always told us growing up, even as little kids, as kind of planting these entrepreneurial seeds in us. He was kind of a middleman and he would say, find something that people want and sell it to them. Mm -hmm. I went, oh, okay. Well, here I am six years old, (laughs) right? And and we had some property. We grew up outside of Portland. 
and we had some property. We had a lot of blackberries on the property, just wild blackberries. And I would go out there, you know, even three, four, five years old and pick all the blackberries. And I would come home covered with blackberries in my hands <laughs> and my face. And, and, you know, mom said, oh, and the blackberries again. Yes, of course. And she would make these incredible blackberry pies, you Ooh. know, the nice blackberry pies, nice and warm, Yum. vanilla ice cream on top. And all my friends would come over because they all said, well, Mrs. Harris, you make the best pies in the neighborhood. <laughs> right. And then one day I said, mom, I want my first job. She said, what? I said, I want to sell your blackberry pies. I said, I tell you what, I'll go out there. I'll pick the pies. You bake them and I'll go around the neighborhood and sell them. Again, dad's saying, find something people want and sell it to them. Yeah. And something that you're passionate about too. You oh, love, I loved it. You love yeah. being outdoors. You love picking the berries. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I started selling blackberry pies door to door, 1964, 65, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Kind of dates me, but it was a long <laughs> time ago. And so I, I started selling door to door. And I probably should have talked to the Girl Scouts about this because mm. even back then, before the Girl Scout cookies really got big, I was going door to door saying, how many pies do you want? Mm -hmm. Not do you want to buy a pie, yeah, but, but how many pies do you want? And of course, the Girl Scout cookies took off because of that phrasing that they started using was, how many do you want? Yeah. How can you say no? Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so the Blackberries were, were my first entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. And then it, it went on from there. I, I used to buy and sell used lawnmowers, 12, 13, 14 mm. years old. The, the local Scotty's Garden Center, people would bring in their lawnmowers as a trade hmm. and they didn't know what to do with them. So I'd go over there again, a dollar. I would pay a dollar for the lawnmowers. Nice. I'd have push them home about three or four blocks to back to our house. I'd push them home. And basically all of them we needed to do, me and my friend Stan, we would clean them up. We'd get rid of all the grass on them. We'd put a new spark plug in it. We'd put <laughs> in the paper for 20 or 25 bucks with a 30 day guarantee. We never got wow. one back. So you already knew about doing a 30 day guarantee at yeah. an early age. At an early age. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so, and, and it worked. Mm -hmm. Now I can't say that I always was an entrepreneur. I always had the entrepreneur spirit. Yeah. And so what's the difference? Well, because I did get a, a few jobs along the way. And the, the last job I have, I, I had, I left in 1995. Mm -hmm. So it's been a while since I was in any job. And it's probably because of that entrepreneurial spirit and the energy that dad planted in us as kids to always be self-sufficient, being able to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I got a job. I was the assistant controller of a small company. It was called Great Performance. And we built... Oh, different training programs for HR, for larger corporations, thousand plus employees, mm -hmm. government, et cetera. We had 50, 55 employees, depending upon the day, but right, right in that range. And then Mark struck a deal at the time with a, a larger uh, publisher to sell the company for 7 million bucks. Well, this was late 94. 
you know, seven million bucks then is like probably 70 million now. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> <Crazy>. the correlation, <laughs> but it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought, and, and I managed the money. I was the assistant controller. I took care of all our credit lines, all that type of stuff. And Mark sold the company and I'm thinking, oh, we're all going to get, you know, a couple thousand mm. bucks, maybe a five grand bonus, something like that for helping to sell it. And I wasn't involved in, in that sale. And so at the end of the day, Mark took his money and left, which I don't blame him. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I thought that he could have paid, you know, even each of us 2000 bucks, 50 employees, you know, it w- would have been a generous way to go. Yeah. And I told the controller, I said, I don't like this. I'm going to mm. leave. And he says, oh, we got all this money now. Because there was a larger corporation. Um, they had about $400 million in cash at the time. So they were fairly large. And they could have really, um, really seated us a lot. But within six months, we were down to three employees. I mm, saw the wow. writing on the wall. And so I left. Yeah. And I never turned back. Nice. Now, this is my ADHD or my passionately diverse side. Mm-hmm. Never look back. I did some training years ago with the Maasai warrior chief from Kenya. Wow. And the word Maasai means never look back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, oh, and when he said that, it made so much sense because he didn't even know what his birthday was. Wow. You know, this Maasai yeah. warrior chief, right? So I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but the thought popped up. So I wanted to share it. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like based on all of the different topics that you can speak on, yeah, we could go down many rabbit holes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to bring <laughs> you back on or, you know, we'll have to do a different podcast. Sure. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's something that I know I'm not alone in feeling is that push pull of. I have these ideas. I'm, you know, I have this entrepreneurial spirit, but then, you know, I'll do something else. Like I just had my own company that I built up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just merged with another firm Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, during the pandemic, there were some great things that happened. There were some not great things that happened. And uh, as an entrepreneur, when you're left holding the bag, no matter what, if people are paying or not paying, you know, sometimes you have to make those hard decisions. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go into this company where I have a great role. I can help build that company up, but it's also, um, I love it. And I love the people and everything I'm doing, but then at the same time, I'm also like, what's that other entrepreneurial thing that I want to be doing. Right. So, so managing that push pull, I think is an interesting, um, dynamic, uh, yeah. for people who want to be entrepreneurs or are thinking about it. Um, and the fact I like that you brought up you know, find something that people want, find something yeah. that you can sell to them because you have to have passion. But if people in the market don't want what you have and you don't know how to sell it properly, then that's going to, you know, it's not really going to work. <laughs> so. And even in that last sentence, that's a show in itself. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I just heard you say. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So you didn't look back, you left. And you went from assistant controller to many other worlds, spiritual world, world of yoga. Yeah, How all sorts happen? of things. Yeah. yeah. In, in, inside of that too, I, I worked closely with some investors on bringing some capital for some different projects. I was also doing a lot of option trading, uh, mm. trading and I made a lot of money in, in the option market 
primarily doing call options. I didn't like put options. I did one thing at the time, but I did that one option trading very well. So I, I was able to stop working for a couple of years. And nice. I was diving into yoga as, as I was growing up. Again, not going too far down that rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, I had had some health conditions. I had a massive water skiing accident mm -hmm. as a kid. I had 60% of my liver removed. Oh, wow. I was in a coma. I had a near-death experience. I died and it came back. And then I started drinking as a teenager and getting into a lot of trouble with, with all of that. Mm. And then I had additional health conditions where they're going to cut off my legs. Oh my gosh. And I had vascular disease and both my legs were blocked and I was on a cane. And the reason I say that is of, of what I heard you, you talk about these other things that I was doing in, in the yoga. I started doing yoga in 1987. And it changed everything. And I loved it. I loved doing the practice, even right from the first. And I, I did it actually in a rehabilitation center that was, the, it's called Pritikin Longevity Center. I went there because mm -hmm. of my legs mm -hmm. and started walking and started doing yoga. And I just felt good. I liked the feeling that I was experiencing. I never would have thought that I would do yoga <laughs> or dive deeper into it. And so in the 90s, as I left that one company, I was doing more and more yoga. I started leading classes. I took a couple of smaller uh, teacher trainings. And then I took a teacher training with some of the people out there might have heard of him, a guy named Bikram, mm -hmm. Bikram Yoga. And I was one of the first 100 Bikram teachers in oh, wow. the 90s. Now, I went not to become a teacher. I wasn't going to teach. Hmm. I had no interest in teaching. I went because I wanted to heal my body. I wanted to get rid of any residual pain mm. in my legs or back pain and really discover, you know, again, within two weeks of going to the training, doing yoga essentially four to six hours a day completely healed me within about two weeks, 12 years of pain. I was just like, amazing. With God. I ended up being the speaker at her graduation at the Olympic Park down in, in Los Angeles on mm -hmm. Olympic Boulevard. And I was a speaker. I've, I've always kind of spoken a lot in, in some way, shape, or form. And if, if we have a moment, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll touch on that in, in a bit too. And then as I went back to Portland, because I was living in Portland at the time, the local studio, the owner of the studio said, why don't you teach? I said, ah, I don't really want to teach. They said, well, if you teach, you know, a couple times a week and we'll pay you and then you'll get free yoga. <laughs> and I went, sure, why not? I mean, what else do I have to do? A year later, I had my first yoga student. Mm. And this is something I heard you say a little while ago too, is, you know, how do we sell to them? Before I knew anything, I would have a notebook behind my counter, right? Somebody would come in, say, I'm, I'm, John would come in and say, you know, I got to tell you, I really love this stuff. My back pain has gone away. My wife is happier with me. <laughs> my boss at the accounting firm is happier with me. And he would say all these things. And I would go write these things down in a notebook. Again, not knowing really a lot about marketing at that time, mm -hmm. a really deeper 
um, educational type level. You know, I, I never went to school for marketing, mm-hmm. but I knew marketing. Yeah. So I would write these things down. And then when I created my website or I send emails out or I do little flyers, I would take the words that my students and the clients were saying and intersperse them in what I was doing. And I found my business exploding, nice. literally exploding. Because I was using their language. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so then I started having other studio owners around the world asking me to help them. Mm. And so I would help them and, you know, they would just call and I would say, hey, do this, do this, do that. And their their business would start exploding too. Well, I ended up opening (laughs) another studio. They're both still open after all these years, which I'm really happy I've sold them. Uh, but they're they're both still open. I then started a company called Yoga Business Expert. And so mm-hmm. I, I was a business side of yoga. I had clients all over the world. And some of them I had revenue share arrangements because mm-hmm. I saw the writing on the wall that, you know, if I'm going to coach them for a thousand bucks a month, or am I going to share in the revenue that we're yeah. able to generate? Because oftentimes it was more than that. You know, I could oftentimes go in and turn a business around to where in a couple, two, three, four months, they were up 100, 200, 300% wow. in, in the revenue. <laughs> and I gave them permission. I had some of my clients actually say, thank you for giving me permission to make money. This is yoga. Uh, I didn't know I could make money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I said, well, look at it this way. I said, The more money you have coming in means the more students you have in your classes and the more people you are helping. Mm -hmm. And it was just like people's light bulbs would go off in their head. I think a lot of times that's when it, gosh, there are so many things we could be talking about in this interview. (laughs) I'm like, I want to talk about this and this and this, but the, our internal resistance to money, especially if we have that kind of servant leadership attitude or that heart where we want to give and we feel guilty if we're keeping money for ourselves or making too much money. And what you're saying is exactly, you know, what we all have to learn is it's not, it's okay to have money. It's okay to have, and you have to nurture yourself. And part of that is making money before you can, the more you can nurture yourself and live in that, then the more you have for other people. Absolutely. And I think we forget that. And we always want to like, I know I get in this as well with some of uh, my nonprofit work or even some, you know, potential clients, like I want to help everybody and you can't help everybody unless you are in the space where you're helping yourself and you're setting, you know, those kind of barriers and limits and opportunities to receive right. yourself. Yeah. Um, but there is something else that you touched on. Um, now I have to see if I can remember what it was. <laughs> I think it it was that, uh, the third party validation. Yeah. So, and this goes back to, I know one of the things you like to talk about and something that's really important to me is storytelling. Um, that's why I'm in marketing PR because I love to share people's stories and I love to hear them and see what I can learn from them and what other people can learn from them. So you had all these, all this business acumen, you started doing yoga to heal yourself. Then you found that you could help other people who had yoga practices make money by instituting these business practices that you did 
which then led to them being able to help and heal more people. So it's a whole circle taking you back to where you started with your yoga journey. And that's really beautiful. And that's something that we say all the time to clients in marketing and PR is that third party validation is so important. Getting the testimonials, the stories, getting somebody else to write about you or interview you um, so that it's not just you saying, I'm fantastic. Here's why, here's why you should buy my product, but actually see what all these other people are saying about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that again, this is probably show 4.0 or something like that. (laughs) One of the things that I would do, say you would come in and you were a new student, right? Mm -hmm. At, At the studio. And you said, oh, I've got some knee pain from running for the last 10 years. I love running, but my knee hurts. Without saying anything to you, I'm thinking inside my head, okay, I'm going to help you overcome your knee pain. And in six months from now, you're going to be our student of the month. Wow. So I would do whatever I could do right up front to help you overcome whatever it might be knowing that you could be a great student of the month and perhaps help other people that have knee issues overcome those as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to wait till you get the results to try to get you to get the results. Right. Right. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fascinating. So you are also, I don't know where in the timeline we shift to best-selling author. <laughs> I had a lot of friends tell me over over the years because of my experiences, because of what I went through growing up and my health conditions and my other struggles that that I had with drinking and all of that, that I should write a book. Mm. I shouldn't be alive today. You know, I'm 63 years old. I was dead at 12 years old. And then again, in my twenties and I shouldn't be here. I mean, really, I'm extremely blessed and grateful to still be here. Mm. And so it was suggested that I write this book. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, in my mind, it was about 10 years and I'd write a few things down, nothing real serious. And I don't remember exactly who it was, but I heard something about writing your book in 90 days. Mm. And so I made a commitment to myself one day that I was going to write my book in 90 days. It took me 79 days to write it. And writing was all, was that the only thing you were doing pretty much? Like, no, not, not, not at all because of my (laughs) passion, being passionately diverse. Right. Yeah. I did it two hours a day. Wow. I was the guy in the corner at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. I would go down every morning at Starbucks for two hours and sit there and drink my coffee or my tea and write for two hours. And that's what I did. That's how I wrote my book in coffee shop. Wow. Yeah. That was the the first book, Mm -hmm. Falling Down, Getting Up. And then later, Rick Frischman, which again, another story, I won't get too far into (laughs) it. He was my original publisher and wrote another book called Expert Success Solutions. So I'm one of the contributing authors Mm. to this book as well. Uh, Both of the books are the number one books. Amazing. Yeah. So four books, um, and I know we, we have some mutual connections um, in the book world. Um, when you wrote these books, were you writing it just to share your story for the first one, particularly to just share your story? Did you know that it would become a bestseller? Um, 
you know, did you want to use it as a marketing tool? Because I know that's something that entrepreneurs do a lot as well as short form books to use as marketing tools. My, the first book, Falling Down, Getting Up, I didn't think of it as a marketing tool at the time. It was more about telling my story and getting it out and maybe somebody would read it and find some inspiration or some motivation out of that book. And that's happened multiple times. If I can briefly go down a short route. Absolutely, go down, go down them. <laughs> one of the things, and, and I did some storytelling um, education at Merrill Hurst College years, mm. years ago. I discovered in my storytelling that I've been telling stories my whole life mm. and everybody has too. And so this mystery of telling stories or public speaking is not so mysterious at all. And so I'm gonna go back to second grade. Well, what happened when I came back from spring break, my dad had business in Hawaii. So we went over to Hawaii and I spent my time surfing and you know, 10 years old, chasing 12 year old <laughs> girls on the beach, you know, catamaran and doing all these different things. So we get back to school after spring break and the teacher says, now it's show and tell time. Everybody's got one minute to tell your story of what you did on spring break. Mm -hmm. Well, at the, at the time, I didn't think, oh, wow, great. I'm going to be a storyteller, you know, and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's just like, what did I, what could I tell? And what could I not tell within that one? Right. Minute? So I talked mostly about surfing. And about learning how to surf and Wendell and Nathan are our surfing instructors and all of that. And I realized that, you know, in my storytelling time later on at Merrillhurst, that we've really been telling stories our whole life. Mm -hmm. And that excitement and that joy and just getting that story out because we want to tell the story. Now we can get into that's a short story. I could take that same short story of talking about surfing and make it a bigger story and talk about the whole trip, the right. surfing, the girls, the sea cucumbers, mm -hmm. the coral, all these different things. So I discovered really the secret to creating a short one minute story, mm -hmm. a 10 minute story, mm -hmm. 20 minute story, a keynote story, mm -hmm. a book. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot it's a lot easier to grasp when you break it down mm -hmm. into the parts. Right. Right. Sound. Yeah. And I, I suspect you probably had some show and tell time as a kid too in school. Mm -hmm. And most people have at one point or the other, they had teachers that had show and tell. Yeah. So we all know how to do it mm -hmm. and it's reinvigorating what we already know how to do. So even like when, when we train people now, because that's part of what we do is speaker training and podcast training is helping people define and tell their stories in different periods of time. I love it. And that's a different way of looking at some of the things that I like to do with um, is when I'm working with somebody, talk to them about their story, but then also when we're looking at their product, what, who are their personas? Who are the people that they're trying to target yeah. and what 
story do they want to tell each of those people, right? Yeah. Because it might be a slightly different story for the consumer versus an investor versus a journalist. And how do you share that in this big world of marketing? And there's podcasts and social media and so many different ways to tell your message, to tell your story and to get your message out. And each of them are important. And so if you can weave a narrative that shares a little bit here, but then it links to this, and then you reinforce it here, that's a lot more powerful and compelling than just, you know, using one of those aspects. Right, right. You know, it's almost like, you know, in the newspaper, they have headlines, which Mm -hmm. is the hook, right? And I don't know if this is true or, or not. It seems like headlines have gotten longer. Because they know people aren't going to read that fifth or sixth or seventh paragraph, perhaps, right. you know, yeah. they need to get as much um, information. in. I think in the first, in the headline, maybe the subheader, and then the first three paragraphs, not everybody's going to flip to the next page or, you right. know, so cover story, then you flip to page four, or page nine or whatever it is. Yep. I think about this as I'm reading the paper. And also when we're thinking about writing things with clients. So, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But you got that short story in the headline which then the person reads at three paragraphs or the 30 paragraphs or whatever it is. If I can mention, I I did something years ago at the yoga studio early on, Hmm. and it was an avatar type exercise. And again, Hmm. I didn't know much about it, but I I was thinking, okay, who is my ideal client? Mary, a 37-year-old nurse, which makes $75,000 a year. She's married to Bob. She has two kids, Sally and, I forget what, Sally and Jeff. They're five and seven years old. They have a dog, you know, uh, on and on and on. Very, very specific Mm. about the client I wanted to serve. She had a bum knee from running and (laughs) still needed a place. She loved her family and her husband, but wanted her own place for herself in the midst of a busy life. About 30 days later, Mary came walking in. She was a nurse at the hospital (laughs) four days a week, everything that I had written. So I began to, again, understand the power of who we want to serve and how to attract them to what we're doing to help serve them. Yeah. I mean, visual visualization, writing it down, putting it into the universe, manifest manifesting your ideal client. And I think there's a lot that's very powerful in that because when you're thinking about that stuff, you're not just sitting still and waiting for it to happen. Um, you are actively doing things and putting things out into the world to make them happen. Right. right? So, yeah. yeah. But my brother was one of the authors of the secret. You're probably familiar with. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So when Rhonda Byrne went to write that book, she approached my brother and said, will you help with the book and will you contribute in the book as well? A lot of people throw rocks at the book, you know, mm-hmm. law of attraction and, and all these things. And it's an easy book to throw rocks at out there in the world. I don't mean literally. Yeah. <laughs> and John Asraf came up with a, a different idea along with that because it's in the book but people don't really see it but I heard you say it mm-hmm. it's called the law of Goya and the law of Goya is get off your ass <laughs> I was that was actually on my list to ask you about right. the law of Goya <laughs> yeah. so you actually got to go out there and do something you just yeah. can't write down this avatar for Mary that the nurse 
without actually doing something. So I had to take Mary the nurse. I had to put her on my website or that concept. I didn't write Mary the nurse yeah. on my website or in my emails or in my print or my flyers to attract that person. I had to do something rather than just write out who she was. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Um, okay. So I want to talk about quantum leaps. Ah, quantum leaps. Yes. This comes back to, to, to nature. You know, have you ever blushed? Yeah. Yeah. So blushing is a change of state. Mm. So science doesn't use the terminology quantum leap. They use the terminology quantum jump. Quantum leap is more kind of what lay people use. But <laughs> quantum jump, again, is a change of state. Mm -hmm. So if we blushed, it's an instant change of state. Right? If we get angry, it's an instant change of state. Mm. Often. You know, there's so many different ways to talk about it. There's what's called the transformation owl. The transformation owl is called the white northern owl. There's kind of white and mm. northern and white southern. It's an owl actually in Africa. Wow. So this particular owl, you know, it's kind of a normal size owl and it can sit there, but it can shrink itself down instantly and make it look make it look like a branch or it can make itself puff it up to make it look really big so there's an example in nature of a quantum jump a change of state mm -hmm. right and they do it for different reasons i mentioned a sea cucumber sea cucumber mm -hmm. you know can be soft most of the time but if a predator comes along it can harden itself up instantly mm -hmm. like a rock so like if an eel clamps on it or something tries to get a hold of it, it feels like a rock and lets it go. Mm. Right? And there are uh, chameleons. I mean, there's so oh, many yeah. examples in nature and within ourselves too, when we take those quantum leaps. So what if we take that same concept, whether it's in our business, whether it's in our relationships, maybe somebody's struggling in a relationship and you just make up your mind that it's going to change yeah and you can vary i mean just like you can change it like that what if you what if you're going along and you're not making any money but if you make this one shift one shift and there's many examples i can give you of this make one shift you can double your revenue in a month right so this idea why not again apply it to our everyday life to whatever mm -hmm. it is that we're doing business, relationship, health. I made a decision on, on my health at one point. Literally overnight, my health started changing. Amazing. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah. But I think, first of all, thank you. That was the most clear um, description of quantum, right? Because <laughs> I think most people are like, what, what does that even mean? It's such a nebulous concept. Yeah. so many times. Yeah. Um, so really appreciate that. And I just love the way that you um, parlayed that into talking about how you can shift things, make, you just have to make the decision. But I think that's where a lot of people get stuck yeah. is they're afraid to make that decision. They're afraid to take that leap. They're afraid to take that step. So what are some ways, because I know that you work <laughs> as a coach and you do a lot of 
you know, you do so many things that we would be on for hours <laughs> really <laughs> to talk about, um, to talk about your journey and all of the good that you're putting back in to serve other people. But how, what are some ways that somebody can get past when they realize that there's a barrier and they just can't take that step? Because I see it. I, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I have friends who are guilty of it, who know if I just did this, this, and this, my health would be back. I wouldn't be depressed. I would have what, you know, X, Y, Z expectation. Um, and they just can't get themselves there. Yeah. This, this sounds kind of, eh, I don't know. <laughs> you got to make the decision first. I mean, it just it sounds so silly, simple kind of thing, but you really got to make that decision. Like if there's things that I want to change in my life that I want to do differently, I have to make that decision first and then I need to act on it. Mm -hmm. I really need to act on it. Even if I have fear in myself, even if I'm uncertain, even if I'm afraid, well, if I do this, then this person is going to think this about me. You know, all those different thoughts that come into our head. And to me, if we're getting nudged to do something, maybe the universe is telling you this is the time to do it. Mm -hmm. And you just do it. You just Goya. <laughs> you, you just Goya. Yeah. And again, I love talking about Goya and I've got tons of different little stories. You know, Les Brown always says, never make a story without a point and never tell a point without a story. Mm. And I, I, I love that. Mm -hmm. I, I, if I can divert again, just for a moment. Absolutely. I read a, a book as a kid and in hindsight, I think it really affected me over the years. And the book was The Complete Sherlock Holmes. Mm, mm -hmm. And in the Sherlock Holmes story, you've got Sherlock Holmes, and he would go in there, investigate these different situations and different crimes prim primarily by looking at the situations in a way that most people weren't looking at. Yeah. Right? So when, when I take a look at a sea cucumber, I go, what can that teach us about taking a quantum leap hmm. or an owl? Or I can get into what a rice bowl can teach us about taking <laughs> a quantum leap and manifesting what we want in our life. Wow. You know, we have those things or the idea that, you know, in second grade at show and tell time, we're learning how to do public speaking and storytelling yeah. without realizing yeah. yeah. So it's taking what we already have and already know and using it. So if somebody wants to make a change, most of the time I will suggest they already know, you know, what it is. They've already got it, but it's just learning how to use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I hope that answers the questions. I kind of feel like I. No, it, it does. It does. I think. Uh, you know, each person has to decide for themselves and they have to, like you said, and they have to acknowledge, and then they have to just take action. Just do it's it. That taking action is that's the part where people stumble. Yeah. So I, um, I know we're about out of time. Uh, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to share some of the resources that you have with our community. And, um, I know you have some things you want to invite people into and, Talk a little bit about that and like what you're doing now. I mean, you still have your hands in so many things, but you, yeah. you do help people get to that next level. Um, 
make more sales, you know, coach? Yeah. One of the things that I'm really focused on right now is Endless Stages. I'm co-founder in this company called Endless Stages with another individual that I met a number of years ago. And he grew up in the entertainment industry. He was started acting as a kid and he was like the, the teenager in Freddy versus Jason <laughs> and has been in a number of different shows, was recently in a Hallmark uh, movie. He's done a lot of public speaking. So he grew up with the entertainment industry framework as far as public speaking and talking and you know creating scripts and timelines and, and all these different things. And then I grew up you know, telling stories, storytelling, teaching people. I've, I've literally taught about 7,000 people mm. how to overcome fear in speaking. So mm. combined, we're a really good combination. My feeling is right now in the world that stories are important. So mm. even like my story, my falling down, getting up, it's not just a story about my story. It's a story about opening up and letting go of this energy that's holding us back. Mm. Much of what's in there, you know, was holding me back. And by writing that out, it shifted that energy. Nice. Right? So what we do today is we help people primarily uh, as podcasters, getting on podcasts, understanding the, the process of podcasting, understanding how to create stories. We're, we're using some of these industry frameworks and some other ideas on the actual creation of the stories and how to do it. Again, that's another show too. Mm -hmm. And as, as well as uh, public speaking in general, we mm -hmm. love working with authors, coaches, experts, entrepreneur type people and getting their stories out. Michael, thank you so much for being on our show today. And audience, please go to endlessstages.com, a free group for authors, coaches, experts, and entrepreneurs that want to get their message out into the world. I can't wait to join the group myself and I'll be back again next week. Want more? Check out amplifywithannica.com or follow me on socials at amplifywithannica.com.